Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, the life in 147 days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Days one through seven without Adrian. Wednesday through Tuesday, October 10th through the 16th, 2001. Children leave you. So do husbands and lovers, but your sisters, they are the only ones with you from crib till death. Unknown source. I wake up laughing. I look at the clock, 7 a.m. Only three hours have passed since the men took Adrian away. Yet, I feel calm because Adrian visited me in a dream. Or maybe it was real. Maybe if I close my eyes, she will return. As unbelievable as it seems, I know Adrian sought me out for a purpose. To make me smile on the first day of the rest of my life without her. Adrian could always make me laugh. And she's not going to let her death stop her from doing so. During Adrian's first visit to Los Angeles, I took her to the Winneka Drive-In Movie Theater, when such things existed, in the San Fernando Valley. We saw two movies, Prelude to a Kiss and Death Becomes Her. Both films were too adult for a then six-year-old Adrian, but I didn't know any better. We dangled our feet over the edge of the bumper as we watched from the trunk of my car. We consumed a huge tub of popcorn, two sodas, and candy. The actor's voices materializing from the speaker next to the car fascinated Adrian. She loved the idea of lying down and seeing movies on a giant screen. Looking back, the experience itself was more important than the actual films, but the second picture became one of our personal favorites. A black comedy, Death Becomes Her, tells the story of two bitter rivals who attempt to kill each other multiple times, but they fail because each woman has drunk an elixir that gives her eternal life. However, the women discover staying young has its price. While they cannot die, their bodies suffer tremendous tolls, but they soon learn how to cover the wounds they inflict on each other. Every time the movie aired on television, Adrian and I sat down and watched it together. We giggled as the women covered their graying dead skin with makeup. I always meant to buy the movie on VHS, but I never did. When Adrian appeared before me, she was wearing her blue dress, the same one she wore for Dave on her Make-A-Wish Day. I could hear people whispering in the background, but I couldn't see them or make out what they were saying. The faceless crowd seemed to form a semicircle around Adrian, who stepped toward me. Initially smirking, Adrian broke into a full smile when she peeled back some skin from her left shoulder. It was gray underneath. See, sissy? 
It's true, she said. I laughed immediately. Adrian didn't need to say another word. The best part about inside jokes is they require no explanation. Adrian lingered a few seconds longer, and then she disappeared, her mission accomplished. John wakes up, startled by my laughing, which has dissolved into a choked, wheezing sound as I fight a cascade of tears. The hug we give each other feels lost and empty, like a broken shell washed ashore, its other half lost at sea. We don't say anything, but the best part of us is gone. We may be in shock, but I know our relationship cannot survive without Adrian. Does he know it too? A few hours later, John and I drive to Forest Lawn in Hollywood Hills. When Casey asked me to name a funeral home last night, I said Forest Lawn because Adrian liked visiting that cemetery and it's close to our house. When we arrive, I notice the lush rolling green hills are mysteriously devoid of any tombstones. John wonders where they are too. We decide to ask after we discuss the arrangements. Adrian likes tombstones. No, liked. She liked tombstones. We arrive at the front desk. I'm sorry for your loss, a woman says. The sentence sounds sincere, yet rehearsed. Name of the deceased? She seems puzzled by my answer. Her sympathetic smile tightens. Hold on. She calls someone and speaks in a hushed tone. John and I are unprepared for her response. I'm sorry, she's not here. What? We reply in unison. After I yell at the woman and tell her she has made a mistake and to look again, I stare in disbelief at John. They lost Adrian? He assures me they have not and we will find her. The woman returns with no answer, only another question. Perhaps your sister is at another one of our facilities. Facility? Call it what it is. You work in a funeral home, a cemetery. You are surrounded by dead people, and somehow you morons lost my child. John ushers me outside, where we call Casey, who apologizes for the terrible mistake. She called Forest Lawn in Glendale because she thought it was the closest one. I don't know whether to feel relieved or more frustrated. That cemetery is farther from our house. John speeds toward the other facility, a mere seven miles away. With morning traffic past its peak, the drive takes 10 minutes, but it feels much longer because I picture Adrian's body drifting in limbo, lost by the stupidity of a mediocre society, as John would say. Eventually, we get there. In the parking lot, my legs are numb with pain, but I force myself to walk. Must find Adrian. A cheerful yet somber receptionist confirms Adrian is here. Now we wait to meet with an advisor who will guide us through the process. Professional and crisp, Melinda apologizes for the confusion and for our loss. I stop her before she can begin her spiel. Where are the tombstones? I ask. Oh, the founder didn't believe in them, she replies. I frown. 
Melinda explains every person has the same small plate for a uniform look. I have this vision of strangers stepping on Adrian. My dislike of one of the most beautiful and popular cemeteries in the Los Angeles area mystifies Melinda. Look, I cannot let people walk on my sister, and she loves, loved headstones. Melinda's jaw tightens, but her smile remains fixed. This isn't right, I say. We need to go somewhere else. Sean nods in agreement. Perplexed but helpful, Melinda leaves to see what she can do. I walk outside and sit on the concrete steps while John calls Casey. We wait, hoping an answer will fall out of the sky. We don't know where to go from here. Then I hear the click, click of Melinda's heels as she approaches us. John's cell phone rings and I answer it. I listen to Casey with one ear while the other one tries to catch Melinda's words. Melinda speaks to John. I found another facility. Casey says, I think I found the perfect place. The name is Hollywood Forever, says Melinda. It's called Hollywood Forever, says Casey. I look at John and repeat Casey's words. Melinda smiles. I imagine something she doesn't do often in her line of work. John and I smile too. Feels like fate. Somehow, Adrian made the decision for us. Melinda offers to transfer Adrian's body at no charge. I thank her and watch as she walks away, wondering if she will remember us. I don't realize how hungry I am until my stomach growls. In the midst of the chaos, I forgot to eat today. John and I pick up food on the way home. We call Hollywood Forever and make an appointment for later that afternoon. At four o'clock, we will figure out the details. For now, we eat. Located at 6000 Santa Monica Boulevard between Gower and Vine, the Hollywood Forever Cemetery has an unassuming entrance. A tall palm tree and a short sign designates the driveway. When I think about how often I drive down this road, I can't believe I never noticed it before. This place feels right. Adrian belongs here. Her body one with the earth, buried next to famous movie stars in the heart of Hollywood. We meet Elka, a nice older woman, perhaps Slovenian, whose job it is to determine how much money we can or will spend on the arrangements. Arrangements? I believe there are more euphemisms in this environment than there are in the medical community. One of Ilka's jobs as our forever counselor is to drive us around the cemetery in a golf cart. Of course, she tells us how sorry she is for our loss, and Adrian has arrived safely from Forest Lawn before the three of us go in search of the perfect property for interment purposes. With my armor intact, I calmly listen as she talks about the various types of plots and points out different locations. I consider a double plot. I could be buried on top of Adrian, but that option loses its appeal when I imagine suffocating Adrian's soul. I also know now, without a doubt, I want my body cremated. My decision has nothing to do with any particular belief system. Cremation is simply cheaper and easier. No one will have to ride around in a golf cart and decide where to lay me to rest. My ashes will share the same ground with Adrian's body. We will rest there together forever.
Now I have to figure out where there is. Since we already told her we can't afford much, Ilka shows us the cheapest plots in the cemetery, an area bordering Paramount Studios. Even the glamour of a movie studio cannot make this section look attractive. The weather-stained, rusted, corrugated tin wall of Paramount, along with the overgrown weeds dotting the graves, make this block of land feel worn and used. I shake my head. Adrian may have worn secondhand clothes from thrift stores, but I'm not going to bury her in a discount aisle. Sensing my building frustration, John squeezes my hand as Ilka drives us to the oldest part of the cemetery. Like the land next to Paramount, this area is less expensive. However, it doesn't appear cheap. Lush grass, fewer weeds, and colorful flowers tell me the living actually visit the dead here. The Garden of Ancestors contains markers from the early 20th century. Many of our friends view Adrian as an old soul. She would fit in here. As we walk toward a particular plot aligned with the edge of the cemetery's property, I stop in my tracks. John, look! I point toward the sky. We can see the Hollywood sign, one of the most famous architectural monuments of Los Angeles. Then I look to my right, and I see the word school in large white letters. The Santa Monica Boulevard Community Charter School resides across the street from Hollywood Forever. Everything about this land feels perfect. Adrian loved the Hollywood sign. She liked school, and she was wise beyond her years. This is it, I say to Ilka. It's perfect. Ilka embraces our decision with such sincere enthusiasm, we almost miss the most important thing she says during her barrage of supportive comments. Lot 1C, grave 13. What did you say? asked John. Oh, for the paperwork. Lot 1C, um, plot 13. John looks at me. His birthday. The first initial of his last name. All these years he saw the numbers of his birthday. 113 everywhere. He tried to convince me it meant something, but I never believed him. Not until now. Maybe another sign of Adrian's destiny? No, I can't believe that, even if she did. Ilka watches us. Is everything okay? Fine, I reply. The numbers, they happen to be John's birthday. That's all. My casual tone has the desired effect. Ilka nods politely and asks no further questions. With the plot selected, Ilka ushers us into her office where we discuss cost and options, her real job as our counselor. Her polite, business-like demeanor eases me. I slip into my armor, shield my feelings, and prepare to negotiate. John, however, has the opposite reaction. His body shakes as he struggles to speak until he lapses into silent weeping. I don't know if the realization of Adrian being gone is hitting him, or if the birthday grave sight thing is blowing his mind. I can't comfort him right now. There are too many decisions to make. I doubt I'll ever be able to comfort him. Like any business deal, it all comes down to dollars. 
scratching numbers on a legal pad, I calculate, I have $2,500, the total sum of Adrian's personal savings from working last summer, as well as her leftover Social Security money. The bare minimum for a coffin, plot, and memorial service is approximately $8,000. We are short $5,500. Ilka suggests a personal loan. The cemetery has the MBNA Family Advantage Program available for situations like ours for poor people. Knowing I have horrible credit, I ask John if he will apply for a loan. He nods. As he fills out the application, I read the fine print. The maximum amount available is $5,500. Perfect. The interest rate is 23.99%. Awful. No interest accumulates for three months. Fine. Without any collateral, the loan is approved and we have a budget of $8,000. That evening, I remember all the life insurance solicitations I used to get in the mail. They were addressed, Dear Parent, or Dear Mrs. Wilson. When I became Adrian's legal guardian, I ended up on a mailing list of companies that insure the lives of children. I maybe read one letter in its entirety. The thought of insuring Adrian's life seemed like a ludicrous and morbid notion to me at the time. Parents were supposed to have life insurance, not their children. The more I read, the more upset I got. Free quote! No medical exam! One dollar buys thirty thousand! I began recognizing the company logos on the envelopes and tearing them up without even opening them. What if I had bought life insurance? Would Adrian have cheated death, if only for a few more years? The insurance industry exemplifies Murphy's Law. If you have it, you never seem to use it. When you don't have it, you need it. My reasoning doesn't make sense, though, because Adrian had medical insurance, and God knows we used it. I suspect I will swim in a sea of what-ifs for many years to come. Email. Subject. Adrian's funeral, date October 11th, 2001, 1.58 a.m. There will be a public remembrance service for Adrian on Tuesday, October 16th from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, located at 6000 Santa Monica Boulevard between Gower and Vine Streets. Please note, this is not a come-and-go type of thing, so be prompt. Please note the following request again. Number one, do not wear black. Please wear a shade of blue in honor of Adrian. Number two, no matter what your religious beliefs may be, please do not mention God at any time during the service. Number three, if you would like to share a story about how Adrian personally affected your life, Please write it down on paper so it can be collected later. Don't hesitate to share. She touched everyone. Number four, if you would like to contribute something, please make a donation to the address listed below. Although finger foods and flowers are welcome, we really need monetary donations. This funeral is costing a tremendous amount of money, and that $50 you might spend on flowers can be put to better use to help us pay for everything, to put it bluntly. A private burial service will follow the next day. It will be by invitation only. Love, Adrian's Sissy.
The next day, Ilka drives us around with a new objective. Find tombstones I like so I can decide what I want for Adrian. With Ilka's Polaroid camera, I take pictures of Ruth Pines and Jenny Rangold. I almost feel as though I'm violating these women in some way, so I say a silent thank you to them. Part of me wants to scream, I don't know what shape, size, or color Adrian's marker should be, and who cares about the font, or whether the letters are polished or unpolished. The number of decisions I have to make seems endless, but figuring out the details grounds me. I have to stay in control and make sure everything is perfect for Adrian. We gather in a conference room to discuss the memorial service with Ilka and Sean, the funeral director. I sketch Adrian's tombstone on a piece of paper while Sean discusses other options, the casket, the flowers, and the service itself. I finish my rough drawing, a combination of different elements from the Ruth and Jenny markers. Ilka asks, what's that? She points to a small, brown, spherical ball, smaller than a tack. I look up and see it rolling across the top of the page. No way. John and I glance at one another. Where did it come from? I hear Ilka's question, but I am too busy examining the ball, feeling its smooth surface slide across my fingertips. It's Marinol, I answer. No, it can't be, says John. But it is. Feel it. I hand the pill to John. For one moment, no one speaks. We are too stunned. I explain what it is to Sean, who appears doubtful, and to Ilka, who smiles as if marijuana pills drop out of the sky every day. Maybe it fell out of the vial during the hospital visit, lay at the bottom of my bag all this time, and attached itself to my notebook at this precise moment. Even the most logical explanation sounds absurd in my head. Maybe it's Adrian, I say, wondering if I'm reaching hoping too much. I've seen a lot of strange things happen around here, says Ilka. Could be your sister. It was rolling across the paper as you were drawing on it. Yeah, she likes her tombstone, I reply. I can tell John wants to believe me. He has no other explanation either. I put the pill in my pocket, satisfied Adrian is pleased with the marker I designed, I also remind myself only sane people question their own insanity. I'm not crazy. She was here. With the majority of our budget spent on the plot and tombstone, we have little money left for the remaining cost. John and I have no choice but to select the cheapest casket, a plain box with gray felt lining. I'm not even sure if it's made from real wood. The plot and the tombstone are more important. The coffin will only make a brief appearance. We barely have enough for flowers, but somehow we managed to purchase one giant bouquet that cost hundreds of dollars. Ilka and Sean must have fudged the numbers, but they don't say anything. Hollywood Forever offers a unique service with their funeral packages, the Forever Life Story, which includes the Forever Album and Chapel Tribute. Alana, our assigned the Life Story biographer, arrives at our home the following morning. I have to choose 10 photographs for the album. Each picture will be accompanied by a voiceover explaining the occasion. Alana brings all of her recording equipment with her 
and she promises to return the pictures as soon as she completes Adrian's life story. I select another 25 pictures for the chapel tribute, a montage with music that will be shown at the end of the memorial service next week. I leave the music up to John and that department. He knows Adrian's taste better than anyone does. Alana also agrees to include video footage from Adrian's spring dance performance so we can show it during the service. Later that afternoon, I argue with a reporter from the local newspaper, The Burbank Leader. After a brief interview for Adrian's obituary, the reporter asks about other surviving relatives besides me. I mention John, of course, but the paper cannot legally list him as Adrian's father. I offer Aiden, our brother, even though Adrian has not had a relationship with him for years. The reporter keeps pressing me. What about her real father, he asks. Dead. And her mother? I hesitate and stupidly tell him the truth. She's alive, lives out of state, lost custody a long time ago. Don't mention her. The reporter insists upon listing our mother and wants her name. The more he pressures me, the louder my voice gets until I decide to take the call outside. Soon I'm shouting, Look, if you insist on mentioning our mother, you might as well not write the damn thing at all. My sister wouldn't have wanted that. Don't you get it? Our mother lost custody. She doesn't deserve to be listed as a surviving relative. She's not even invited to the funeral. My tirade silences him. We exchange polite goodbyes and hang up. The next day, the Burbank leader prints Adrian's obituary. There is no mention of our mother. The next few days become a blur of activity. John and I meet Anya for lunch at the Glendale Galleria, where I shop for the perfect funeral outfit. John buys a tie to match my shimmery blue full-length dress. I buy a sleeveless blue sweater for the burial service and blue Skechers sneakers as well. I decide on a whim to wear Adrian's blue slippers with my new dress. Even Anya gets into the blue theme with a matching suit from her favorite store, Talbot's. If I stop moving, I won't make it through the week. I have to keep going. Tuesday morning, I go to the funeral home early to do Adrian's makeup myself. I don't want her looking like a freak. I remember our grandparents lying in their open caskets at their double funeral in 1990. Papa looked like he had spent too much time in a tanning booth, and two mama resembled Betty Davis's character in the movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Appalled by their unnatural appearance and unable to control a screaming four-year-old Adrian, I walked out of the service. The embalmer, Virgil Wilson, no relation, dressed Adrian in her blue satin gown with her blue monarch butterfly wings spread underneath her. He warned me in advance the embalming process causes the body to bloat. When he shows me Adrian in the coffin, she appears as if she's gained 10 pounds. However, what disturbs me the most is her smile. It's gone. What happened to her smile? I closed her mouth. Is something wrong? I feel the tickle in my ears, the precursor to tears. It's not his fault. He didn't know. No, I just miss her smile. That's all. Virgil nods. Let me know if you need anything. He leaves me alone with Adrian in the empty chapel. 
shivering. I focus on her face and not the stillness of her body. Remembering the foundation fiasco before the ballet, I only dust light powder over Adrian's face to combat the pallor of her once olive skin. Sweeping shimmery eyeshadow on her forever closed lids, I noticed how her eyebrows were thinning out, but her eyelashes were growing back. Don't stop. Don't think. Just keep going. I dab color on her lips and realize I will never see her mouth open again, her full teeth smile again. Why did he have to close her mouth? Finally, I spread body glitter all over Adrian's bald head, the way she wore it to the benefit in July. I tie a blue scarf around her neck and arrange it so it hides the marks left by her central line. Slipping her favorite blue flip-flops on her feet, I do my best to cover the embalming marks too, Virgil's suggestion. With her head, makeup, and clothes complete, Adrian only needs her jewelry. She never left home without it. I slip on her blue gel bracelets along with Dave's blue sequined wristbands. I adorn her fingers with her Celtic knot ring, her amber ring, and during the service, I will give her my college ring. Without moving her head, I clasp three necklaces around her neck, her favorite fairy amulet, the amber pendant that matches the ring, and the diamond necklace Anya and Alex gave her for her 13th birthday. She never wore it because she was afraid of losing it. I stand back and look at Adrian in the open casket. I see a blue fairy, but only her body. Her soul is gone. I know Adrian wants me to be strong for John, for Adam, for her friends, even our adult friends, many of whom arrive early to help us set up. Anya and I notice the dust particles in the air. They seem like fine glitter, something out of a Disney movie. Others see it too. Adrian's in the house, we say. So many signs. Is this another one? Between my obsessive organization, the detailed program, and Hollywood Forever's fine staff, the actual memorial service goes well with only a few hitches. So many people show up. The crowd tumbles outside and listens through speakers as friends and family tell stories about Adrian. The battery in the videotape recorder dies after two hours, so some speeches are not captured for posterity. Afterward, the line of people paying their respects seems infinite, but I continue to shake hands, accept condolences, receive hugs, and in some cases, give hugs. I stand alone though, next to Adrian's open casket, because John took Adam outside to get some air. He doesn't return until the masses leave. John brings Adam back inside the chapel once the crowd has dissipated. Adam puts a picture he drew, especially for Adrian in the coffin, and says goodbye. Then John ushers him back outside, asking one of our friends to keep an eye on him. They know not to come back into the chapel. What needs to happen next is a private matter. Brightening our somber mood, Sean says, I've never seen a service like that one. There must have been over 150 people. It was incredible. Really? You think so? I beam with pride. 
keep the small talk going so we do not have to do it. I can't say goodbye. Sean, John, and I stand by Adrian's coffin, staring at her body. Remember what we talked about? We nod. One of the many disadvantages to buying the cheapest casket is it does not lock down the way the expensive ones do. Ready? John and I shake our heads. I allow the salty tears to fall down my face. No one can see me now. I don't need to be strong anymore. I stroke Adrian's arm. John squeezes her hand. I love you, kiddo, he says. I kiss the top of her sparkly head. I love you, sweetie. Sean slides the lid of the coffin into place. We'll secure it later, but here you go. He gives John a long nail and a hammer and points to a precise location. John's hand shakes as he puts the nail in position. Thunk! John chips away at my heart. Thunk! Pieces of me fall to the ground. Thunk! Reality seeps into the empty spaces. Thunk! Adrian isn't coming back. I grab the edge of the gray felt box for support. John drops the hammer and holds me. We are nothing without her. I am nothing. Fewer than 30 people attend the private burial service the next morning. Under a canopy, next to a large hole in the ground, we sit in metal folding chairs, the ones closest to Adrian, we who love her the most. On this perfect, sunny autumn day in Southern California, we form a cloud composed of many broken hearts. Most of us share our grief by standing up and saying a few words. I have no written speech, created no program for today. I talk, but I don't know where the words come from. They seem to belong to someone else. The pain obscures any logical thoughts I may possess. My blood has turned to razor blades. It pumps, it cuts, and the faster my heart beats, the more the pain increases until my razor blade blood reaches my heart, which shreds to bits. Men bring the casket, sealed inside of a larger cement container closer to the hole. <laughs> Getting the expensive coffin wouldn't have mattered anyway. Two large bouquets of flowers rest atop the concrete, as if the bright colors will make us forget Adrian's body lies inside that cold chamber. I watch as the men use ropes to lower the cement box into the ground. Manual labor? In the movies, it's automated. At one point, they almost drop her and I hear a collective gasp behind me. I wanna go with Adrian. 
I want to push those flowers aside and throw my body on that modern day version of a tomb. Bury me with her, please. If no one else was here right now, I would do it. The two idiots who cannot balance a coffin with ropes wouldn't be able to stop me. I would hold on so tight, my body heat would melt the concrete, and then I could hug Adrian again. Throw dirt on me. I don't care. Nothing matters now. Don't you see? I lean forward as the flowers disappear from sight. Last chance to go for it. Jump right in. The sound of someone sniffling pulls me back, and I see Adam crying, yet trying not to. He wants to be a brave young man. In that moment, I gain clarity. Not only would I be unsuccessful if I leaped into the hole because our friends would insist on rescuing me, but I might also damage my tenuous relationship with Adam. I walk away from the hole in the ground. I stay with our friends long enough to release blue balloons in honor of Adrian. One by one, each person lets a balloon go. We all tilt our heads up to watch as they float through the air. Fueled by a light breeze, they soon become blue dots against a lighter blue sky far away from us, but perhaps closer now to an airplane full of passengers traveling to an exotic island or a flock of birds flying to a warmer climate. I shuffle away shunning our friends, not bothering to say goodbye. I find an unmarked gray granite bench facing the lake and lie down, curling my body in a fetal position, much like the one I found Adrian in five months ago. The pain feels slower now. Instead of tearing through my body, it moves with great effort, weighed down by the unknown. Ducks waddle over and form a circle around me, my own white ring. Adrian never finished reading The Fellowship of the Ring. They nestle in the grass, tuck their beaks under their wings, and fall asleep. I feel as though someone sent them to protect me. Maybe, Adrian? I close my eyes. I feel as though my life is over, and in a way it is. My life with Adrian is over. All three of my premonitions came true. Cancer appeared in my life. I have already outlived my sister, and I will never see her grow up. Why, Adrian? I don't understand. Nothing makes sense. As I lie here, wishing my body could deteriorate in the dirt with Adrian, I ask myself, did I give her a good life? Did Adrian ever feel happy? And how will I live my life 
without her. I will spend the next 10 years seeking the answer to that question. Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. There is one more episode titled After Adrian, where you're going to find out what happened to a lot of the main characters in this story. I hope you tune in. It airs in a week. Thank you again. Goodbye. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>